Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In verses 1 through 10, you see a picture of the pastor's heart. It is a picture of the Apostle Paul's heart for the church at Thessalonica. And uh, we have already covered verses 1 through 4 uh, in our previous lesson where we saw his affection and his sacrifice and compassion for the church. And I paralleled it to how you and I should have affection and sacrifice and compassion towards the church as well. And so we continue with our study on this with four other attributes of this pastoral heart beginning in verse 5 through 10, which says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to you... I'm sorry. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor may have been in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, I want you to know, I, I just read this in the New King James Version, and I prepared the message in the New American Standard Version. And so, um, you're going to probably see a little bit of difference in that the content is the same, but the words are, are different, and I just brought the wrong Bible with me uh, today. And so, first of all, you saw His affection for His people you saw his sacrifice for them and his compassion for them in verses 1 through 4. And now he says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. He says, that's the New American Standard. By essentially repeating what he just wrote in verses 1 through 2 where he says, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So here's what's happened. Paul is writing the church at Thessalonica reminding them that he had sent Timothy to them. He had sacrificed to do so, which left him alone in Athens. And Timothy has returned with his report. And because of his report, he is writing this letter to them. But he explains here why he sent Timothy to them and the report he wanted to hear. He was afraid they may have labored in vain because, in fact, he thought perhaps the tempter, Satan himself, that great stumbling block, may have bewitched them perhaps with another gospel as happened with the Galatian church. And so what he is doing, he says, for that reason, if, if you retranslate it, he says this, it would sound like this. For that reason, when Paul could endure it no longer, he sent Timothy to find out about their faith. That's basically what's being said here. And so 
when he sent Timothy, the apostle did not know how the Thessalonians' faith had weathered the storms of trials, tribulations, and persecuted it. I want you, persecution, I want you to know they were a persecuted church. They were suffering. And Paul's constant concern for the churches under his care is expressed in his warnings, especially to the church at Ephesians, or Ephesus, to the Ephesian elders, where he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves, from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, and draw disciples away from them. Anybody that has had any longevity whatsoever in the body of Christ knows this is a reality. It, there is not a body of, of Christ anywhere where this has not happened, where there have been outside forces to come in to draw people away, and then there have been inside forces rise up and draw people away. And uh, sadly enough, many, in many cases, they've, they've blamed the leadership for those kind of events when it had nothing to do with that. Um, many a minister has lost his position because of this this uh, sad truth. And, and that is like the devil to divide the flock. And as the scripture says, strike the shepherd, you'll scatter the sheep. But it is a reality. We have experienced it in our own church, perhaps even experiencing it. Every church I have pastored, we have experienced this. This is the natural way that God allows the wheat and the tares to grow together. And uh, as I read in 1 John, it says, And there were those who left us, for they were not among us. And I want you to understand something before I go on. Sometimes God removes people from your church for the purpose of purifying that church. He knows something about them. He knows some things about them that we don't know. And that if we did know, it would bring open shame and open scandal to that body. And in those cases, you just thank God for the time that you had, but in all things, you thank Him for what He's doing because we do not understand His ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We cannot comprehend them. We just seek to obey Him and leave the consequences to Him. And so sometimes you'll see a, a, a loved family or something like that that's, that's either carried off in some strange whim of doctrine or they're led astray. You know, normally people leave by groups or something takes place. And instead of, instead of just reacting to that, you want to respond to it because the Scripture says those who leave us are not of us. And that is truly a way God uses to purify His bride. And so you just, you just go on. You have to go on. Paul was very concerned that the Thessalonian church may be struggling as a new church because the wolves had come bringing strange doctrine or there were people inside that, were, that appeared to be believers but were in fact wolves themselves in sheep's clothing and could have poisoned, polluted, or even destroyed uh, the Thessalonian church. Remember the biblical precept, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so in this case, he has, he has warned the Ephesus church and said to them, to the elders, the leaders, that, you know, there are going to be people that come in. He says, know that after my departure, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. 
And the apostles' fear was that the tempter Satan might have tempted the Thessalonian church successfully. That he might have tempted them successfully to reject the gospel truth which was new to them. So to do that, I want you to understand something. The devil uses three basic approaches. Now, before I give you these three basic approaches on how the devil comes in and destroys and, and steals and takes away and, and uh, kills bodies of, of believers, you need to understand something. There's nothing new under the sun that he's created. We know how he works from the Scripture. The more you learn the Scripture, hide it in your heart, the more you're going to recognize when he's working because he does not have the ability to create. He is not a creator. And uh, his playbook is, we can read his playbook in the Bible. And we know that he even uses the Word of God. And uh, he uses it to his own destruction, his own judgment, and his own condemnation. And so this is just the way that it is. And we need to develop a thick skin. And we need to exercise our mind muscle and learn the Word of God to see how he he, he moves, and so I'm going to show you three ways right now. He may be doing this in your business. He may be doing this in your family. He may be doing this in your church. But this is how he works, and I want you to see him. And so the first is this. His first assault is to prevent people from believing. His first assault is to prevent people from believing. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of, unbelieve, of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So he blinds the mind. He blinds the mind. And, and you know, I, I want to tell you something. You need to be careful when you talk about just being in your heart and not your mind. That sounds to me like somebody who's had their mind blinded. We're to use our mind. We learned recently in a message on a Sunday morning about weak faith is the result of a person not thinking. As, as Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, that he says to, what to think upon, to dwell upon these things, and that weak faith is the result of us not using our minds to think. Well, if the devil's going to prevent belief, then what he's going to do, the first thing is he's going to blind the mind. He's going to blind the mind. Number two, if he cannot do that, his second assault is to destroy someone's initial interest in the gospel. He will try to destroy their initial interest in the gospel. Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 through 21 says, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the world, immediately he falls away. So the reality of it is this, is that he brings an, an assault on the person who he is aware of that has been intrigued or interested in the gospel, and he brings a, a situation to bear that will inhibit that person fully 
um, investigating the claims of the gospel. So, and he doesn't have to do this with, uh, with something terrible. He can do it with something that is temporally pleasing. For example, you can get a pay raise if you, uh, if, if you will work on uh, work during the time that Bible teaching takes place that you got your interest in. If you come in, let's say it's a Wednesday or a Sunday or something like that, you can get something to draw you away where you do not have the choice uh, to continue to grow under the preaching of the Word. It's, it's, it's you have to choose one or the other. That would be the way he would do it. Another way would be uh, 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 something would happen in your family or something happens in, with your vehicle or something like anything that can prevent you from being under the preaching of the Word. And here's the reason why. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so this is something he does. He, he will blind the mind, and if he cannot blind the mind, he will bludgeon your experience. He will bludgeon your in, in intrigue in the gospel. He will somehow in, inhibit your initial interest. And then here is the third one. If he cannot stop you from embracing the gospel, if he cannot stop you from embracing the gospel by blinding your mind or inhibiting your experience, Satan strives to weaken the faith of those who believe. He strives to weaken the faith of those who believe. It says this actually in one, two, three, four, five, six different places in the New Testament, this particular strategy of the devil. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of the devotion of Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And if anybody knows about the Corinthian church, they had sowed much in their flesh. They were at war. The devil was at war with them. And uh, they, they, were a, they were a church that had very, very weak faith because they had not engaged their mind. And uh, they were subject to all kinds of difficulties, although they were believers. They, they were under a constant assault because they were a worthy target to have their faith knocked off. And consequently, they fell, but they didn't fall finally. And uh, so the devil is going to assault people by, by the assault to pervert their minds or to prevent them from believing. He is going to assault your mind by uh, uh, bludgeoning your interest in the gospel or put it, trying to destroy your initial interest. Or he is going to, if you become a believer, then he is going to do everything he can to weaken your faith. Everything you can do, everything he can do. He, he's not going to try to weaken your religion. He's going to try to weaken your faith in God, that God is who He says He is, and He does what He says He does. So if Satan had succeeded in his assault on the Thessalonians, Paul knew that his labor among them would have been in vain. Uh, that word vain in the Greek means empty. It means void. It means pointless. It means for nothing. That is a, that is a terrible truth, but we know something God's Word never, ever returns void. And one of the proofs that the Apostle Paul's ministry 
was authentic to the Thessalonians is that his ministry was not based upon the Thessalonians' carnality. It was based upon Jesus Christ's truth. Let me tell you something. A church that uses carnal means will attract carnal people. And consequently, there will be carnal believers. And a church that is like the world is no use to the world. You can write those things down. Do you want to go to church for a concert or do you want to go to the church for Christ? You cannot have it both ways. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And so the reality is here is that Paul's work was not in vain. It tells us of a little bit of the truth that, you know what, he had some uncertainty about them. But we know that where the gospel is preached, it is the power unto, of God unto salvation, and it does, God's Word never returns void. And we learn this from this text. And so the reality of it is he, was, he had a concern legitimately that it may have been empty or void or it had been prohibited, it would have been pointless, and it had been nothing but praise God it wasn't because we're going to see in this text how that he is just euphoric, absolutely euphoric at the, at the testimony of Timothy when he, when he lets Paul know that, oh, that's a vibrant church. In fact, this was not the only time, though, that Paul expressed this feeling. It's not the only time he expresses this feeling about whether or not his ministry is pointless. For example, in Galatians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 2, he wrote, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along, along with us. It also, it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preached amongst the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain." So there's you an example of it. To the Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Do you, do you see a pattern here? Likewise, he is concerned about the Thessalonians' faith. He wanted to know that it was real and not superficial. So what I want you to see from them is this first point today, or the fourth point, his protectiveness towards them. He had this protectiveness towards them. He did not want them to be carried away. This is a sign of a very good pastor. He not only has affection for his people, he not only sacrifices for his people, he not only has compassion for his people, but he is protective of his people. But this is also a sign of a good church member who is protective of his or her fellow church member in the body of Christ to see that the work of God has not been done in vain. You see, we need the church for the purpose of increasing in our sanctification towards God. We need each other. What would we do without the local church? 
There are so many today. There are more today that are done with church than are still with church. There are those who talk about they love the church. They want to be part of the church. They want to receive the emails of the church, the information of the church, but you don't find them at the church. They don't give to the church. They don't take care of the church. They don't help the church, but they'll tell you they love the church. Those folks have fallen away. They have fallen away unless they are somehow prohibited by some kind of physical reason from being here. They have fallen away, and it's just time to call it what it is. They're done with the church. They say we don't like organized religion. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he said, Since I have preached the truth to you, have I become your enemy? I cannot tell you how many good folks I have known that, that have found their way into sin and then responded to me as if I was the enemy because I showed them the truth about what they were doing. And any pastor who is worth his salt will do that because a pastor is to be protective of his people that they be not carried off by wolves. Well, how much more are the people in the congregation to protect the bride as well to make sure that it is not carried off by wolves? It's not just the pastor's job, it's all of our jobs. If we're in the church, we need to make sure that we show affection and sacrifice and compassion, but that we have a protectiveness, not of the church, but not as the church as the building that, you know, makes sure the weeds are pulled and the budget is full, but that we make sure that our brothers and sisters have not fallen into sin and that if they have, we're there to lend a hand to lift them out to lift them out of the mercy and to lift them out of the misery with mercy and to show them grace. But you can't do that if you're apart from the God. If you're having church in your pajamas, you can't do that. You can't do that, friend. Look at me. You're falling away. You've lost your first love. Jesus Christ gave himself for his bride. It's called the church. How dare people speak badly about it? It's not perfect, but neither are you. You're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Come be part of the solution. We're saved by grace, not by works. But because we have been saved by grace, we have faith that works. So come help and show, show affection. Show some compassion. Show some sacrifice. And for heaven's sake, come be part of the bodyguard of the bride of Christ. Be protective of the people of God. And say, I don't like what you're saying. I'm doing exactly what Paul's done. Because unlike the Thessalonian church, there are too many that I know that have been carried away. That have, the work has been in vain. And I just wanted to quote to you what the Apostle Peter said. Jesus Christ commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. I'm calling you to repentance if you have fallen away. And if that offends you, then I'm calling you to believe what you believe. I'm calling you to look to see what you really believe. You know, the Bible says that it is a bad thing for a man to be alone. It is a bad thing to think that you can make it as a believer without fellowship in the church. Friend, according to the testimony of the Bible, you can't. You can't. And if you don't come back, 
you never were part of it anyway. Okay? As the Bible says, they left us because they were not of us. Amen? Or oh me. So he had, there was the affection, the sacrifice, the compassion, the protectiveness. Number five, he had a delight in his people. Look at verses six through eight. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. When Timothy arrived back to, from Thessalonica and presented his report to Paul, the apostle was by that time in Corinth. He was in Corinth. And Timothy's report was so encouraging to Paul that he described it as good news. Now it's interesting, this word good news. He uses the Greek word euangeliitsamenu. This word means evangelism. That's the same word. Euangeliissamenu means evangelism. Evangelism means good news. Its root word is euangelion, good news. And so what he's talking about here is, is the good news he is receiving from Timothy is literally a gospel. It's such good news. Who's, and, and I want you to know something. Every time this word is used, whose every other occurrence in the New Testament, it refers to the gospel message of salvation. But here it refers to the report Timothy gave him of the flourishing faith of the Thessalonian church. So every time this big old long syllabled word, euangeliitsamenu, is used in the New Testament, I mean, that's a, that's a $20 word. It means the gospel of salvation, except here. This report that he gives of the Thessalonian church, he puts on par emotionally with him in that moment, is the same good news as the gospel that he heard in the house of Annas when he was saved. Ananias, when he was saved. And so Timothy conveyed a four-point report, report on the Thessalonian spiritual status. First, he delivered the good news that their faith in God and Jesus Christ was genuine. Their hearts had been like the good soil and received the seed of the gospel and bore much fruit. Did you know that you should expect your pastor who is in spiritual authority over you according to the Scripture, who will give account for you, did you know that you should expect your pastor to make sure that your faith is genuine? Do you know that? That's a model pastor. That he is, he, he is not only uh, affectionate, he's not only uh, sacrificial, he's not only compassionate, he's not only protective, but he he is one who delights in His people, and He delights in His people in four ways, and one of them is that He is, he is certain they have received the gospel, the gospel of faith in God and Jesus Christ. You need to expect that. You need to expect that of your minister. You need to expect that of Him in the lives of other people, but first primarily with yours. 
You need to expect that. Number two, he told Paul the good news about their authentic love for the Lord, which was the clearest evidence that they were Christians. So the second thing is you have here in this report is that Paul was overjoyed because he knew how much that they loved the Lord. You should expect your pastor to expect you to love the Lord, to be looking to see if you love the Lord. That will, give him, that will give him cause for delight. Not only that you have received the gospel of God in Christ Jesus, but that you love the Lord. You genuinely love the Lord. It's not that you profess it, it's you possess it. It's not that you believe it, it's you practice it. You need to expect your pastor to do that. You want to cause him delight? You need to make sure that he is a man that is going to make sure his people, he's going to make sure that he looks to see that his people obey the gospel and love the Lord. Number three, Timothy announced that the Thessalonians always thought kindly of Paul. It was good news for the apostle that they had cherished memories of him and were still confidently loyal to him as Christ's true apostle in view of his many enemies and and the concern that Satan and false teachers would draw the Thessalonians away from the truth as they endeavored to do so in many places, Paul was absolutely thrilled to know the church trusted him. Here's another thing. You need to make sure that, uh, as a, that, that your, your pastor, one, is worthy of trust, and number two, if he is, you need to put it in him. You need to trust him that He tells you the truth. And that's the basis of a pastoral ministry. It's not that He goes and He preaches about religious freedom. It's not that He goes out there and He preaches politically harmonious things that line up with your thought and your reasons. No, it's not that He says this or He's this sweet or this is His personality. It's does He tell the truth? Does He preach God's truth? Now, He's a sinful man. He'll always be one. But does he preach the truth? And so it was a great delight to Paul that he delighted in them because they received the gospel, they loved the Lord, and they trusted him. And that tells you that he was worthy of their trust. He had not labored in vain. So when people say, well, I don't put my trust in my pastor. Well, you should. Your salvation rests in the Lord, but your education spiritually is going to come from your pastor. God has given you a pastor to train you to train you in the ways of holiness, to encourage you, to rebuke you, and to exhort you. That's what his job is. Okay? And number four, Timothy declared that the Thessalonians' affection was so strong they were longing to see Paul painted by the separation from his spiritual children. He was pained by, excuse me, by, his, the, by the separation of his spiritual children. Paul rejoiced in the good news that they were eager to renew fellowship with him. Are you eager to, to, to remain in fellowship with your pastor and your church? Are you eager to, to see them again? Is there a reason you may not be? Is it really that they did something or is it that you're doing something? Is it really their fault or is it really yours? It's your choice. You can't control them, but you can control you. And so what causes delight in Paul here that he calls this good news on level with the gospel, emotionally with him, intellectually with him, was that they received the gospel of God in Jesus Christ, that they loved 
the Lord. The next part is, is that they thought kindly of Him and put their trust in Him and that they were longing to see Him again. It made Him feel good. It made Him say, this is truly great news. So, so I want you to know something. Timothy's report was a source of the Apostle's shift from concern to delight, from despair to delight. I would use the word anxiety, but Paul says be anxious for nothing. So the reality is it, it, it moved him from concern to delight for them, and that is in the midst of all his distresses and his afflictions, as it says in the text, all the persecutions, all the pr trials, all the pressure that he was experiencing, Paul was comforted about the true saving faith of his children. I'm going to tell you there's nothing going to give your pastor more joy to delight in than seeing that his people love the Lord, they trust the Lord, they trust their pastor, they delight in seeing each other, and they feel this way about their brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a picture of a genuine pastor. And it is a picture of the attitude of a church member as well. But it should be noted as a warning. It should be noted as a warning that when churches were unfaithful, and they succumb to sin and false teacher, false teaching and false teachers. The Apostle Paul was devastated. The Apostle Paul was devastated. This happened, in fact, in the Corinthian church when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, he says, We're depressed. In fact, he says, We despair unto death because they had been carried away. They had fallen to false teaching. And it also devastated him in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 when they lost interest in preaching the gospel in a city where God had opened the door for the message. I hope you're seeing a picture here of what brings delight to your pastor and what brings despair. What brings depression? What brings on despairing such great sadness is when people become followers of false teachers and when people decide they will no longer share the gospel. Well, that's the job of the minister. No, it's not. The job of the minister is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Remember, it is sheep that reproduce sheep, not shepherds. No shepherd has ever reproduced a sheep. Only sheep can reproduce a can reproduce sheep. And I want you to know something. I believe this with all my heart. Healthy shepherd, healthy sheep. Healthy sheep, healthy flocks. Healthy flocks, healthy reproduction. And so part of the health of a pastor is that he can delight in his people that he has a sense of protective obligation over his people. He's willing to be compassionate for them. He sacrifices for them. He, he takes less income so that they can have more of what the church has to offer. And he has a genuine affection for them. But what breaks his heart is when they listen to all kinds of other teaching and then are carried away and fail to share the gospel that they themselves profess to possess. All right? I, 
I tell you, this is just, this isn't all written down here. This is just really blessing my heart as I think about this and I think about another audience even that should, should hear this. I think a room full of pastors would benefit from this when you live in a day where all the pressure's on the pastor to make sure that there's plenty of nickels in the bank and noses in the pews, that churches have their brand new buildings and their sticks and all of the carnal mindedness that's going, that's being put upon pastors to build churches filled with carnal people. It's a shame. But I'm going to tell you something. There's an awakening that's taking place. There is a new clarity. And God is doing in this time of falling away, in this season of falling away, when people are taken over by old wives' tales and every whim of doctrine as they're letting their circumstances control their peace and all of these things, there is a clarity coming to the men of God that are men steeped in the Word of God who, who are not out there preaching anything else but the truth of God's Word. There is a clarity that's coming. And one thing is for sure the Bible says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many are on that road. But narrow is the road and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life and few will find it. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. So it was as though he began to really live again once he received a positive report about the Thessalonians. It just was this burden was lifted off of him. The knowledge that they stood firm in the Lord further stimulated Paul to renew zeal in the ministry. Whenever he saw any believer stand firm, stand firm, that's the Greek word stikete, stikete. It is a military term meaning not to, reti- not to retreat in the face of attack. In music, it comes in the form of staccato. Staccato is a in music. Marches are done in staccato. It's a style of music. You have staccato. Well, it's a military term. No retreat. No retreat. No retreat in the face of attack. It's speaking of a strong faith. And he delighted in it and he exhorted them to continue in that resolve, to continue with staccato. Continue marching on in the face of the warfare in front of them. He says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. I want you to understand something. When Paul writes this letter, he had done the work and left. And he didn't know, he didn't know until Timothy's report, if they really received the gospel. And so folks ask this question, how do you know if a person is really born again? 
is really born again. Time will tell. So he was burdened. You know, he really loved these people. It's evident. He, he must have really enjoyed ministering at Thessalonica. And he went, he went, he went to Athens. And then he, he or continued his ministry. He left them, left them behind. He labored amongst them, left them behind, and he began to be burdened, had it stuck. So he was burdened so much that he left himself alone and sent Timothy there and to bring back a report. And he found out, yes, the faith stuck. It really did. Those who are genuinely born again continue in the faith. They continue. They don't, they don't, they continue. They may fall. They may fall grievously, but they will never fall finally. They will never fall finally. They will always come back. They will always come back to their senses. They will always, and, and I'm going to tell you something. I want you to understand this. Those who constantly and persistently want to have more of God and less of themselves, I have found in, in congregations that the folks that say, they are the worst sinners, are the people that have the most alive relationship with the Lord. They, they're not conceited. They are the most teachable. Every church I've pastored, even the one I have, and I'm sure that where you are in your church, you may feel the same way. They're not the conceited ones. You cannot teach a conceited person anything. They cannot condescend to learn from a pastor younger than them or who has not been a Christian as long as they have or, or whatever. You can't teach a conceited person anything. But I have found, and, and I think other church people, I know they will say this, that those who truly, truly are on the upward way, that walk on that narrow path, that have gone through that narrow gate, who are becoming more and more like Christ, they are more grieved over their sin than those who are just got their fire insurance and are saved and starting out. Those who are just the salt of the earth believers that just, you know, they're just, they're saved, they love their church, they love Jesus and all that stuff. That's, that's one thing. You talk to them about sin. Yeah, sin's bad. But those that are growing in godliness, becoming like Christ, they are the ones I have found are truly convicted by their own sinning. They're the ones that come see, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. Am I saved? And do you think with all the information they have, with all the study they've done, with all the assurance of faith, with all the Scripture that's in their heart, they still wonder because they want to be freed of sinning. And when you're a godly person, that's one thing you want. That's how you know you're a Christian, truly, is you want to be done with sin. You want it to be killed in your body. You want to be more like Christ, less like the world. I've never found somebody that doesn't go to church that says they're a Christian demonstrate that attitude. I've never seen somebody in church that regularly attends church that does nothing for the church ever express that either. I've never seen anybody that does a lot for the church but has an attitude of contempt ever act that way either. But those who are humbly serving before their Lord that have a vital, a living prayer life, those who truly seek after God, His holiness and His righteousness, they are more convicted about their sin than everything. And it's like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. He said, I am a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior who saved a wretch like me. So he had the affection for the church, the sacrifice for them, the compassion for them. He was protective towards them. He delighted in them. 
And then in number six, he had gratitude for his people. In verse nine, it says, For we thank God. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? He is truly, truly happy. The devoted pastor recognizes that all thanks for spiritual progress goes to God. You need to understand that. That's certainly how I believe. When people tell me I've never learned as much as I have, it's just, it's just this is the only thing I can say is that. It's them. Whatever I have to impart, it is a gift. That's it. It is a gift. And it's not a gift from me. It is God's gift. I have concluded in my own heart I need to quit deciding why I shouldn't be a pastor and remember why I am one. Instead of talking myself out of doing it, I need to remember why I am one and talk myself. Why should I be a pastor and a preacher? And the reason is because of Him. It's because of Him. And so the apostle acknowledged that his gratitude for the Thessalonians had to go to God. And, then, and, he, and that he found no adequate words to express this feeling for him. says, for what thanks can we render to God for you? He said, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. What can I say to you? Because to God for my thanksgiving for what I have heard, that your faith is so strong. What thanks can I offer? That is, he was profoundly in debt to God in return for all the joy Timothy that Timothy reported that had brought him this joy. He realized that he had no means to express adequate thanks. He was speechless. He was, here's this man that wrote the majority of our New Testament probably, and he is speechless. And it noticed the word render in return. This render in return is a Greek word that means to express the impossibility of repaying the Lord for all the divine work that caused him re to rejoice before God. It was just impossible for him to say anything. Anta podunai. He couldn't say a thing. What can I say to express the joy of your faith? I tell you what, I wish church people would, would decide to be the kind of people that could every once in a while make their pastor speechless. <laughs> make their pastor speechless. Now I know in the sweet congregation I pastor about 1150, they're ready for me to be speechless on Sunday morning. They're afraid I'm preaching Pharaoh sermons. You remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? He said, hey Pharaoh, let my people go. About 11.50 on Sunday mornings, my folks are wishing that I became speechless sometimes. And we laugh about that. But the reality of it is, is when was the last time your faith caused anyone to be speechless? Well, these Thessalonians, Paul couldn't say anything. There was nothing. He was speechless in his expression of joy to God. What an amazing, amazing people. And what was it about them? They had affection for each other. They sacrificed for each other. They had compassion for each other. They protected each other. Uh, they delighted in each other. They had gratitude for each other. Is that what it's like in your church? No, no, no. Don't ask that question. Is that, is that what it's like? Is that how you feel about your people in your church? Is that how you personally feel? Is that what you practice? Sacrifice, affection, compassion, protectiveness, delighting, and gratitude for them? The outworking of God's grace in their life had made Paul grateful beyond expression. And so you see this gratitude in this pastor, this gratitude in the Apostle Paul. And so then you have the last thing. 
you have Paul's intercession, the pastor's intercession for his people. In verse 10 he says, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So let me tell you something. I don't have this in my notes, but I want you to see this. You notice those last five words, six words, what is lacking in your faith? I want you to understand something. This Thessalonian church was not perfect. I mean, Paul's sweetheart church is Philippi, the church at Philippians, the church at the Philippians at Philippi. That's his sweetheart. They, they sacrificed out of their poverty to, to fund his the mission that he could continue to take the gospel to the world because it costs money to take the mission, the gospel to the world. It costs money. It's not free. Oh, God provides. Well, the Philippians believe that. God provides, and He said, you know, the Philippians said they, He's going to provide through us, so we don't have anything left, so we're going to give Him all that we have. And He loved that church. And He said, don't be anxious for anything, but in all things with thanksgiving, prayer, and supplication, make your requests made unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that was what He told them. They're an ideal people, but the reality of it is here is this, is that the Thessalonian church was not a perfect church. It, it wasn't any, it still had its lack, it had its weak spots, it had its blind points. And so even though the true pastor will have joy and gratitude because of his people, he still realizes there's a need to pray and have prayerful intercession on their behalf. I want you to write this down. Don't pray about your church, pray for your church. Don't pray about it, pray for it. Don't pray about your pastor, pray for him. Don't pray about your church members, pray for them. And he prayed for them. And he, he will understand, you know, he, he realized they needed prayer. And he, will, and he will understand that their lives are not yet perfect and that his ministry among them is incomplete. So even though his ministry, which has left him speechless at, his, at Timothy's report to him, he still knows it is incomplete. It's incomplete. And for those reasons, like the Apostle, will we need to engage in sincere intercession to God that He may have opportunity to minister amongst His people. Let me, let me say that again. He prayed, He prayed with all sincerity that He would have the opportunity to minister amongst them again. And God did provide that through this letter. And so the reality is, I mean, you, you see this, 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 is, this is his prayer all through Scripture. He does it in Romans, he does it to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, even writing to Philemon. The reality is this, is that a genuine pastor's heart is one that engages in sincere prayer to God that he has the opportunity to minister and continue to minister to his people. If your pastor, whoever he is, doesn't want to minister to your people, you need to have him call me. He's got a problem. He's got a problem. Pastors must minister to their people. But let me be very clear to you in what they're to minister to. They are to minister the truth of God's Word to the people. That is his primary objective, the pastor. It's not to make every hospital visit. 
every home call, ever answer the phone every time, respond to every text message and email. His primary obligation is to preach the truth of God's Word to His people. It's not to be the chief financial officer, the chief organizational officer, the chief executive officer. It is to be the chief preaching officer. It is His job to preach the truth to the people of God, and the Bible calls that ministry. That's what it is. It is not their job to wait tables. It is their job to pray and prepare and preach. That's their job. So I want you to see this as I'm wrapping up. Paul's praying was constant and fervent. He intercedes for them night and day and did so most earnestly. So let me just give you two brief things here. The ultimate goal the ultimate goal of his praying was to complete whatever was lacking, was still lacking in their faith, and the immediate goal. We have the ultimate goal to complete what was lacking, and the immediate goal was that he may see their face to supply the instruction they needed right away. In fact, in chapters 4 and 5 of this letter, he provides the very truth that they needed to shore up those areas that were lacking in their faith. And we'll get to those soon enough. So what do you have here? You have a genuine pastor's heart. We've taken two weeks to take this passage apart. You have the affection for his people. He sacrifices them. He has compassion for them. He is protective towards them. He delights in seeing them. He has gratitude for them and He makes intercession for them. And in seeing the pastor's heart, you see the heart of the believer who is a fellow worker, who is a fellow minister. He or she is to have all of the... This is what your heart's supposed to look like as a church member. This is what a heart exam would reveal. Do you have these seven characteristics for your fellow church member? And so in conclusion... If Paul is the ideal human model of one with a pastor's heart, that is only because he carefully patterned his ministry after Jesus Christ. After Jesus Christ. I used to say, and for good reason, that Moses is the greatest shepherd of men that ever lived. He may be. He may be. He was certainly the most humble man that ever lived according to the Scripture. We know Abraham was the friend of God. Moses was the shepherd of God. He pastored the, longest the largest congregation the longest time and took him the longest distance. But one thing we know about him is he was a genuinely humble man. But what we get to see with the Apostle Paul is we get to see the heart we get to see the heart of the pastor. And I would just say this. When you take Moses, all of Moses, all of the good of Moses, and you take all of the good of Paul, you will find it without any spot or blemish in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. What more could we want? And it's Jesus. He perfectly modeled a pastor's heart. Jesus did. He is the ultimate example of affection for His sheep. 
for unselfishness for His disciples, that is sacrifice, for compassion for His people, for protectiveness towards His lambs, for delight in His church. Jesus has gratitude for His followers and makes intercession for His beloved children. Did you know that's in the Bible? Every one of those things I just said, now that we have ended, every one of those things has a Bible verse with it. Affection for His sheep is found in John chapter 10. Unselfishness for His sheep sacrifices in John 13. Compassion is found in John 11 in Matthew 23. Protectiveness is in John chapter 10. Delight for His churches in Matthew 16. Gratitude for His followers is in Matthew 11. And intercession for His beloved children is in John 17. So the perfect pastor's heart is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these are actually visible and enumerated in Scripture. So here's the bottom line. The model of the shepherd's heart is the divine standard for all pastors today. And the model of God's church members is found in Jesus Christ as well today. Both pastor and pew should have an affection for the sheep of God, should be willing to sacrifice for the sheep of God, to have compassion upon them, to be protective towards them, to delight in the church, to have gratitude for followers, and indeed to make intercession for the children of God. Well, may God bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. And may, he, may His countenance be turned towards you and be gracious to you. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you and good night.